As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. In our continual kind of quest for where do we as people, and more specifically, black and people of color, locate liberation and how we can organize around a liberatory kind of praxis. So I want to kind of unpack this question further with the amazing and brilliant Nabila. Hey, salamu alaikum. How are you? Hey, wa alaikum salam. Alhamdulillah, I'm doing good. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. Thanks for joining. So I'm going to go straight into it. And my question is, I've often said that liberation will not solely be found in the political. And as much as we need the political to kind of organize ourselves and have our kind of, to kind of, you know, arrange ourselves around a tangible politic, we definitely have to kind of, I think, look beyond just the political. And I, I want you to kind of help me unpack that question. So if I was to ask you, where do we as people locate liberation? What's your kind of visceral, instinctive reply to that? That's a really good question. And it's definitely something that we have been vexed with historically as Africans enslaved in the Western world and trying to locate how to return to our our state of freedom. So I think that even though politics plays its place and it has its role, I look at everything holistically and I don't think that politics exists in a vacuum. Politics are informed by our attitudes, by postures, by the paradigms from which we exist. And so I think that we have to look at this holistically and being a holistic wellness professional, I tend to look at the entire spectrum of the world through this holistic lens. And I definitely think that liberation falls in in that regard as something that we have to approach from a holistic angle. So then besides the political, where else should we locate liberation for us? I mean, straight away, what comes to mind is the Bob Marley famous line in Redemption song, you know, emancipate yourselves from mental slavery non-bata ourselves can free our mind. So going on that, where else can we locate liberation besides the political? It's psychological slavery is very important. And I think that Harriet Tubman really touched on that in asserting that when she said that she freed a thousand slaves and she could have freed a thousand more if only they knew they were slaves. So mm-hmm. even she was speaking to the psychological aspect of slavery, the physical part and the political part is only one part of our liberation. There's another part that definitely deals with the psychology. And I think even in addition to the psychological aspect, we also have to look at how we're framing liberation. And one mm-hmm. thing that Harriet Tubman understood was that liberation was shared. And this is why after she found her freedom, she actually went back to free other people from her family, Mm. from her plantation. And how many of us would actually do that? Like if we were able to escape the greatest horror of our lives, would we go back to get someone else? Or would we never want to return ever again? And I think what you're, what, sorry to interject, but I think what you're touching there is what we're, we as black people, I would say in the Western world, 
suffer from quite a lot that, you know, I mean, Obama has wrote this recent book called to the, the Promised Land and Dr. Corner West rightly inserts there, uh, he made it there himself without taking anyone else with him. And I think that's a very poignant point to be made because a lot of the time we find, you know, we're just happy to be black and brown faces in high places on our own terms. And it doesn't matter what the collective thinks. And I feel like definitely what we learned from the our previous, the freedom fighting revolutionaries in our tradition were well, that they had this collective spirit. I think it's interesting because I actually introduced this show, uh, my new intro for The Malcolm Effect, actually is a quote by Malcolm X when I think, I believe it's a white reporter or a reporter anyway says to him that you have a lot of respect by whites these, these days. People respect you, people love you. And he, uh, he kind of interjects and cuts that person off mid-sentence by saying that no matter how much respect people, sh- respect people show me or individuals show me, particularly white individuals show me, if that respect is not shown, and he says, to the rest of my people, then it doesn't exist for me. And that's what, for me, kind of is the making of going into revolutionary and a visionary, whereas a lot of us have kind of embodied that individual collective, uh, individual kind of individualistic mindset. So yeah, just going on, sorry to kind of, I know that's a long No, those were, that was a very good point. Malcolm X is one of my heroes, a fat to have for Al-Hajj Malik al-Shabazz, our <laughs> prince. So I yeah. know, uh, thank you for that wisdom, because that speaks to two things. Number one, it speaks to the notion that we as Black people have to stop editing ourselves and making the goal of appeasing to the white gaze our primary purpose. So Mm. that is key to our liberation because that's a part of our psychological slavery that centers whiteness and centers white approval at the at the center of black lives. And then there's another part to it is even this idea of understanding the collective because this mm-hmm. is also principle to our domination and our colonization is this old Machiavellian concept of divide and conquer. And so, so many myths that we learn in the the Western world about individualism, they're all false and they're not subject to any population but the black people because it's a myth, right? Even this Mm. idea, we have this idea in America, this bootstrap theory, pull yourself up on your own bootstraps. And it's so ironic that it's perpetuated by the white population that has completely advanced itself based on oppression and white privilege. (laughs) So what would they know about bootstrapping? But it's a myth that they use to shame people of color and particularly black people from forming collectives and honoring the collectives. And also it disregards institutionalized oppression. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I think what you're speaking to is this kind of representational politic that because we have black and brown faces in high places, that somehow is kind of a cause for celebration of progress. When we yes. and, and I think and what it does, it takes blame away from the from empire, from, from places like the United States and Britain to say, how can we, you know, it kind of extols them or, or kind of excludes them from saying and gives them the excuse from to say that, well, you know, look at this is progress, isn't it? We have a black, the first black this here, the first black this here. So I feel like ultimately I, th- I think it's a very important point that the minute the kind of people in these places either routinely deny the experiences of the masses or act as if the issues aren't that bad, then those positions actually act as a hindrance for progress. They can very well do that because what happens with this tokenism is, as you mentioned, is that it keeps us from doing the real work when we just have structural diversity. And that means we have representation just in, in 
I guess, skin color, just in race, racial representation and all of these other things, but we don't have any reformation in policy and organizational mm-hmm. structure. We're not actually dismantling white supremacy. We're just using people of color as props to yep. pretend that we have progress. And so this is what fake progress looks like. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's very important that we don't get distracted by representation politics. And we learn to focus on core values. We learn to mm-hmm. focus on policy. We look at systems and not just look at people as existing in a vacuum because people are a part of a larger complex complexity of a community, of structures, of power that we have to examine. And with that said, I just want to add something about that too, because Mm -hmm. I think there's this interesting dynamic, especially in America, and it's probably similar in the UK where you're from, is that there's this notion that progress and Black liberation is a Black problem. And it's a, of a black concern only. And I think that that's also a part of the division of removing black people from the collective identity. And so we suffer from it intragroup and then also intragroup. Yep. And I think Martin Luther King said it best when he said, none of us are free when others are oppressed. Because exactly. he also understood the idea of shared liberation, right? And so we aren't the only ones that are suffering from this system. The issue with the United States is that I feel that there's this this onus on Black people that we have to heal racism, that we have to teach our oppressors where they went wrong. And mm-hmm. this is super problematic because we are trying to overcome oppression and then we're left with the task that we also have to heal our oppressors and fix their problems. And I don't believe that we have to. And we also have to turn that onus back over (laughs) to our oppressors. It is not our job. It's it's only our job to heal ourselves and heal our community. And through that, then we can show up wholly and effectively form coalitions. But I definitely don't think it's our problem to fix the evils of white America. Absolutely in agreement with you. But what would you say to that white person who genuinely wants to do better and and comes to you and and wants to learn? What, What do you say? That's a really good question because I think that that labor, okay, so there's two things that comes to with that labor. Number one, it's very taxing and it's it's actually double traumatic to already have to experience trauma on behalf of one group. And then we racism involves gaslighting, which is this active denial of our reality, right? There's mm. this denial that this oppression is existing. So that's an added layer of trauma. So actually take that back. It's not double trauma. There's a trifecta. Then there's a triple layer of trauma of us being, you know, left with the task of having to educate white people on their oppression and how to to cure their racism. And I think that that emotional labor also shouldn't be on us. I think that it is up to these type of white persons that you mentioned to do their own work and their own labor. If there's actually people who are in racial justice and anti-racism education, sure, seek out that education, but also do the work yourself. And then once you have done the work, now it is your responsibility as a white person to do affinity work within your group. And I think that if white people or allies of any other race, if they are true allies, then their task is to do that intergroup work within their group and not to take up space in the intergroup forum. 
Okay, I think that's a very interesting take. And I like the distinction you've made, though, because I do feel like it's not up to every single black person to kind of educate people on racism. I mean, some people just want to exist and existing alone as a black person can be hella tiring and hella problematic sometimes. So I, I, I totally agree with that. But however, I do make the distinction, and I think you were kind of alluding to that distinction, that I do accept that if you posit yourself, let's say someone like me who does race work or someone who's out there doing anti race and work I guess that you're that by virtue of that position that you've taken up you do have to engage in those kind of discussions with white people or people who seek to understand racism and, and anti-blackness no no I don't think you have to do anything that is not your responsibility and I think that that is a part of our ingrained exploitation and our historical exploitation that black people are supposed to give free labor so if you are this person that is doing racial justice work and someone wants to learn from you and get some consulting or something like that then maybe they should book you for your services and pay you for your labor. But to think that just because you're a Black person that has understanding of racial dynamics, that you therefore have to do free emotional and intellectual labor to help heal and engage in anti-racism education just on the strength that you're a Black person that has some knowledge in this area is also the hallmark of our exploitation. Okay. Okay. I hear that. Maybe don't agree entirely then. I do agree insofar as saying that absolutely someone who is just a black person doesn't do racial justice work. It's not up to them. They can just live their lives. I think someone who poses themselves in that position, not saying that they have to, but I think it does come with the role. However, what they choose to do with that role, whether they're going to charge for their labor or going to offer it as a, as a, educational service online, I think it's up to that individual. Yeah, I think us choosing to engage in dialogue and choosing to be a part of forums and things like that, that's one thing. But just because I'm existing and operating in this space, it doesn't mean that I'm available for this type of free labor on an individual basis. I really don't believe that. And for someone who has has, has a history of doing racial justice work, and people just expect that. So let's say, Hmm. let's use a, a parable of any other field, okay? Let's say you are, give me a a job title. Let's say you're a mechanic, okay? And just because you're a mechanic and you fix cars, that people think that they can come and get a free diagnostic from you because this is your position, or would you make them actually book an appointment? Of course, book an appointment. Exactly. So I don't feel that racial justice work should be treated any other way. In fact, it's extra laborious for us to have to go through this trauma and to still actively be processing it and trying to heal it. And then to people to feel that they are entitled to us engaging and consulting and educating them. Even for myself, I'm going to tell you, like with Black History Month ending, I totally celebrate Black History Month. I celebrate Black History 365. And I think that it is instrumental to American history. And it's it's also sad that it, it it is separated and it's excluded from American history, such such that you know Carter G. Woodson had to create you know Negro History Week. Yeah. But what it has turned into in this day and age is that it's turned into let's use Black History Month to deal with racism and let's talk about all the mistreatment and all the trauma of Black people during Black History Month instead of actually celebrating Black history and celebrating Blackness and centering it, why is the focal point always trauma and racism? No, I think that's a very good point. Thanks for raising that, actually. And I think that's very good framing of Black History Month. 
And I feel like if people are sincerely committed to doing racial justice work and in that we can establish a more fair and egalitarian society, racism is a reality that must be dealt with every single day. Every single day, there must be a commitment to that. Whereas Black History Month should not be like, okay, let's just ignore Black people for 11 months and then center all our racial problems and trauma in the month. So yeah, thanks for that framing, actually. You're welcome. And like, normally I do a lot of this work during Black History Month. I'm, you know, a part of lots of different panels and celebrations. And I was even blessed to be a keynote speaker during Black History Month. And it's interesting because I'll hold forums and panels where we're uplifting the narratives of various Black artists and thinkers and just everyday people, even students. And I notice that these forums will quickly get very heavy because people will use us and those those opportunities to process their privilege and to process racism. And that's unfair because even with Black Lives Matter, although I fully support the spirit behind the movement, I mm. want us to move past this very bare minimal understanding of Black existence. Black lives more than matter. Black lives are sacred and Black lives should be celebrated. And I want us to move past this identity of pain and struggle and oppression. There's more to us than that. And there is a space for that. It shouldn't be erased, but it shouldn't be central to our lives. That is not our work because we are not the ones with the racism problem. Deep. None that I hear that. I'm in agreement with you. Thanks for that. Um, You're leaving our listeners, I'm sure, with a lot of things to kind of think about. So I do want to return to the kind of question I asked at the top of the show, and that was, where do we locate liberation and what does liberation look like? Great. Um, that's, that is a beautiful question, and I think that we're always exploring that. And I would love to dive deep into that because that is my life's work. But before we do that, I just want to circle back to just, I was just reminded of this wisdom from our ancestor, Toni Morrison, who is mm. also my shiro and my literary ancestor, where she says that the function of racism is a distraction. I remember this. And that it, you know this quote, <laughs> okay? It's so powerful because she says- You have it in front of you. I, I do. Please I read do. it for us. Please read it for us. Sure. Okay. I'll read it for you. So she says, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language and you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly, so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Someone says that you have no art, so you dredge that up. Somebody says that you have no kingdoms, so you dredge that up. None of this is necessary. There will always be one more thing. Oof, mic drop. Super powerful. And I am guided by that in my work because I would rather center my work on actually healing Black bodies and helping us reclaim our autonomy over our bodies that were taken away from us, Mm. right? Because a big part of our enslavement, it said that we weren't even human. It said that we were actually stuck. You know, like the stock market and you buy pieces of ownership in companies, we were treated in the same fashion, except worse because we are human, right? So in the subhuman, most gruesome form of chattel slavery, we are, our autonomy over our bodies was taken away. Our, you know, our license to care for our bodies, to nurture our bodies, to feed our mind, bodies, and souls were all 
colonize. And so with respect to this, our existence is resistance, yes, indeed, but also us reclaiming our Black bodies by nurturing them, you know, giving our bodies the proper nutrients, rest, rest is revolutionary, and <laughs> understanding that wellness is political, mm. right? I think you just given the title of this episode, Rest is Revolutionary. <laughs> so yes, thank you. For that. Yes, I'm here I, for that. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. <laughs> so, in your own work, then, how do you kind of um, kind of wrap up after this few more questions? But in your own work, how do you ensure that you inculcate that in people, particularly Black people? Well, circling back to the idea that a huge part of our enslavement is psychological mm -hmm. and trying to help people actively break the chains of psychological slavery, as Dr. Naeem Akbar would put it. Mm -hmm. And a key way that I do that is through channeling affirmations and rewriting scripts. So we have been cognitively programmed to believe certain things about ourselves mm -hmm. and about the world. And a big part of us re reclaiming our identities is tapping into this divine voice with inside each and every one of us. And this was the same divine voice that led Harriet Tubman to freedom and that that led our ancestors to freedom at a time when they were told that they didn't deserve it, that they had a God-given appointment to serve the white man. Mm -hmm. And even despite this attempted brainwash and this oppression, this multi-layered oppression, you know, this physical, spiritual, and psychological oppression, still there was an innate voice and an innate calling for freedom in so many of our ancestors. And this is how they got freedom. And this mm -hmm. is what made them fight for it. And this is how we have the degree of freedom that we have, right? And so- each and every person is instilled with this humanity. And so in my work, I teach people how to find their liberation through meditation. And number okay. one, fueling your mind, body, and soul. Because meditation has complete wellness benefits psychologically, physically, and spiritually. And this okay. is backed by science. And number one, we're improving our wellness, which I said wellness is political. So there is that facet to it. And number two, we're nourishing our mind, body, and spirit. And lastly, through meditation, we are rewriting the scripts in our brain and we're speaking love and kindness into our being. And this is allowing us to tap into our true selves mm. and get this psychological psychological freedom that we need. And this is how we can manifest a whole new life is if we shift the way that we think. And there is a tradition in the Hadith Qudsi where God says, I am as my servant thinks I am. Mm -hmm. And so even in the Islamic tradition, we learn that even God is who you think he is. Mm -hmm. And this is why both an atheist and a believer will see proof of their beliefs in existence. Right. Mm. And, and so this is why someone who maybe they say that there's no God, how can you believe in God? Like, and they point to all the problems in the world because they're literally seeing proof of their belief system in existence. And the same way that a believer would be like, how could you not think of God? Look at all the marvels of the universe. Look at how the sun and the moon and the planets rotate in complete harmony. 
right? And so both parties are seeing proof of their beliefs in existence. And so this is also founded in the Islamic tradition, this concept of manifestation. And that's why one of Allah's names is the manifester, mm. right? And so through tapping into this divine voice and speaking different affirmations into ourselves and rewriting this tape that we have that has psychologically enslaved us, this is key to our psychological liberation and our spiritual liberation. And then hopefully, ultimately, our physical and political. All I can say is that's another mic drop moment. <laughs> Thank you so much. Now, this has been a truly insightful episode. I am going to be posting Nabila's socials in the episode description as always. Finally, how do we connect with you? I'm going to post your socials. What are you doing? What are you up to? Tell the, tell the listeners. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to do the work that I do, and I am healing myself <laughs> from <laughs> the, the harmful white supremacist systems, and I want to share this wellness and this light and love with everyone else, and mm -hmm. that's really my life's work, is dedicating to holistic wellness and also centering Black voices and centering Blackness and centering our Islamic tradition. How often do you hear a meditative guide with a voice like mine and that with a voice that maybe even sounds like yours, mm -hmm. right? And so I'm trying to decolonize wellness through my wellness business, Mind, Body, Soul Wellness. So please feel free to check us out. We just launched the Mind, Body, Soul Institute, where we are teaching courses on how to actually cultivate a meditation and manifestation practice to level up and transform your mind, body, and soul from inside out. So please feel free to connect with me on Insta, and that's mind, body, soul with an O S O L Sol Como I'll definitely post the socials in the episode description anyway. So yeah, find me on these interwebs through Mind Body Soul and then also through my handle, uh, Nebula Nabila. I am Nebula Nabila anywhere in the cosmos. So <laughs> feel free to connect with me, aka Nebulosity, and let's build. Thank you so much. And thank you once again for coming on. Our listeners, our supporters. You are listening to The Malcolm Effect with Mamadou. Please like, comment, subscribe, be that on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. And this has been an amazing episode. And see you next time.